0: Good morning and welcome to Central Church. It's Memorial Day weekend. We are so glad that you are here, whether here present or watching online. We are glad that you are with us today. We're in this sermon series called Growing Together. Jesus changes everything. Do you know that? Jesus changes everything. And, and I think that's even true, that, that truth is pointed out in the very beginning story of Jesus. If you were to go to one of the most dull passages, not only in the New Testament, but in the entire Bible, one of the most dull, the passage that you usually skip over to get to the good stuff is in Matthew chapter 1. It lists the genealogy of Jesus. You will notice in Matthew chapter 1 that there are three sections of 14 generations each that lead from from Abraham through King David onto Jesus himself. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, like the Apostle Paul would have been when he was called Saul the Pharisee. And as a, a, a Jewish audience, it would have been extremely important to show that Jesus had a, a family tree. It was his credential statement you, you had to show where the Messiah came from. If you couldn't do that, then don't. No matter, uh, don't bother wasting your breath or the ink that you're you're using to write. But here's the here's the curious thing, really the scandalous thing, right there in black and white for all the world to see. Matthew includes five women, not just five women, five uh, scandalous women. Again, remember, first century, women had no value, no place. Male-dominated society, and yet here, in his credentialed statement, the story of Jesus, uh, Matthew lists five women. Jesus changes everything. Here they are, five, five different women. And so from Matthew's point of view, later it will be from Paul's point of view, there is neither male nor female. And I know, I know <laughs> you say, well, Pastor you know, when you're talking about genealogy, you need to have male and female. You need to have grandma and grandpa. You know, it's birds and bees sort of thing. I understand all that. But for in the first century, including a woman in the list would have been not only unnecessary, it would have been uh, silly to do. Now, we, we do genealogy. My great aunt uh, uh, traced my mom's side of the family uh, back, and she traced, supposedly, supposedly, I don't just trust in my great aunt, uh, she found that, that we were related to Martha Ball, Washington, that that side of the family could trace our roots all the way back to the very first first lady in the country. So la-di-da, how about that? Now, my, my dad's side, they're all, you know, all drunkards, thieves, and, and so I think it balances out. But here, 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 Matthew includes, in the genealogy of Jesus, five women, a rather shady group. He mentions Tamar, verse 3, Rahab, verse 5, Ruth, verse 5, Bathsheba. He doesn't even get around to actually naming Bathsheba in verse 6. He's he's only referred to as Uriah's wife. And then, of course, he mentions Mary in verse 16. That's it. I suppose we can understand why he would mention, you know, the virgin Mary. It's It's Jesus' mother, after all, but... But why would he include these other women? Couldn't he have found some, some upstanding, righteous, Hebrew type of women? Why did Matthew have to mention, the, of all the women he could have mentioned, why mention these five? That's my question for us. I, I, I don't know how to talk about these ladies in polite company on a Sunday morning, quite honestly. I'm going to try, but I, you're going to have to help me here. Verse 3 is Tamar. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Oh, boy, this is a messy story. Tamar's story, I don't, I don't know how you tell this story. Tamar's story, uh, it's in, it's in uh, Genesis chapter 38. Tamar's first husband was a guy named uh, uh, Er, E-R. I met a guy yesterday named E-R. I didn't tell him that I'm going to be preaching about E-R today because this is not a good story. E.R. and Tamar didn't have any children. Uh, E.R. was not a great guy. In fact, he was a terrible guy. In fact, the Bible says this. It says, but E.R. was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. If that's what the God's holy word says about you, then you are a bad person. I mean, that just settles it. If God puts you to death, then you are wicked, wicked, wicked. That was Tamar's first husband, not a good guy. Now, I'm not making this up, this is just, this is... So what happened back in those days? If a man left his wife childless, this is so weird, then the the husband's brother was legally required to be with that woman so that she could have a child to take on uh, 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 the family name and so she could inherit the family's property because you know a woman couldn't couldn't have property there was no social security if a woman didn't have children then she was in real real trouble so it would be considered so so the dead man's brother would be with the sister-in-law it's creepy isn't this creepy and the child wouldn't be considered the son of, of the of the dead man's brother but the dead man's son it's called, you can look it up, you can Google it. It's called a Leverite marriage. That's what it's, it's called. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 25. That's what it is. So it was not only uh, legal, but it was expected that that would happen. So Tamar's fr- father-in-law, Judah, uh, orders his second son, a guy named Onan, to provide a child for Tamar. Well, didn't happen. Onan died too. So E.R. dies Onan dies, and that left Tamar with a little bit of a problem because Jude only had one more son and quite honestly, he was, he was thinking that Tamar was bad luck. And so, you know, he stopped answering her phone calls and didn't reply to any of her emails. He just said, you know, you're on your own. So what's a nice girl supposed to do in a matter like this? Oh, this is where it gets really tricky. Um, uh, she, it wasn't Halloween, but she she dressed up like a prostitute. Again, I'm not making Genesis. Read Genesis. You thought you thought the Bible only told nice stories about nice people. It's R-rated in Genesis 38. <laughs> so she dresses up like a prostitute, and Judah, whose wife had died uh, already, uh, went out looking for such a lady of the evening. And she was dressed up, and, and he and he didn't have any cash. And so she said, well, give me your driver's license, so to speak, and go to the ATM machine. And so he does that, and when he comes back, she's gone. Now, a few months later, Tamar shows up to be expecting a little baby. That was a capital offense, to not be married and, and to be expecting a child. And so at that, at that point, when they were all getting upset with Tamar, she whips out uh, uh, you know, Judah's driver's license of sorts, and said, Do you remember where you left this, Judah? And this lady is included in Jesus' family tree. Aren't you supposed to keep some family secrets? Let's keep some secrets in the family. Don't tell the whole world. Matthew's only including five women, and he has to choose Tamar as one of them. Oh, my goodness. Well, the next one, the next one, the next one's just as bad. Rahab, verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You remember Rahab. Rahab ran the best little harlot house in in Jericho. Some preachers try to make her out to be an innkeeper. She wasn't no innkeeper. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't Motel 6, I will keep the light on for you. It was Motel 6, we keep the red light on for you. That's Rahab. That's why those Israelite spies could go to her house and not be detected because there was was a steady stream of fellas coming and going. And this lady, as if there's some things you're supposed to keep secret, this lady is included in Jesus' family tree? Are you kidding me? If Tamar wasn't bad, Rahab, Rahab, oh, she's worse. It gets worse. It gets worse. The next one, the next woman listed is Ruth. Ruth. Verse 5, Boaz, father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Do you remember her? Ruth was a Moabite. Do you remember Moabites? Does that ring any bell? In in Genesis 19, it tells us the terrible story of how the uh, 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 the Moabites started. It was when Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughter, thereby starting the whole race of Moabites. So much so, they hated the Jews, hated the Moabites so much so because of that horrible beginning is that they concluded they were horrible, they were awful, they were terrible, and, and, and they were so unholy, they could never go into to, uh, uh, the, the, to worship. Deuteronomy 23 says this, No Moabite or any of their descendants may enter into the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. What does that mean? That means if, if you had an ancestor... That was a Moabite when Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. We would have people at the door. Our greeters would say, you, they'd come in, are you a Moabite? You are? You were a Moabite when, when Columbus sailed? Get out of here. We can't have your kind around here. And she's included. She's included in this story of Jesus. Are you can we, If you're only going to mention five women, why include why include Ruth and Tamar and. Rahab. It gets worse. Verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew can't even bring to, to say that it was Bathsheba. He can't even say her name. Doesn't say that she was David's wife. No, she was Uriah's wife, the guy who was in the military, who was off serving his country. And while he was away, his wife was messing around with the king. That's, that's the biggest scandal in the Old Testament. And yet, here it is. She's mentioned in Jesus' family tree. Are you kidding me? We, we need a savior we can be proud of. And there, there he mentions Tamar and Rahab and, and Ruth and Bathsheba. What? And of course, then, then he mentions Mary. Mary, not without her own scandal. You know, she was found to be with child and Joseph and her had not uh, become fully married yet. What does this mean? Well, it means if you're keeping score, Matthew lists these five women all of questionable backgrounds, all with a past, I suppose we could say. And last week, if you were here, you remember we talked about Paul saying there's neither slave nor free. Uh, it, it, we were talking about how your past doesn't, doesn't matter, your background it doesn't disqualify you from being a part or, or being able to be a part of the, of the family of God. And right here, black and white, in Jesus' own family tree, there's these scandalous women with their shady past. It means no matter how scandalous your background, no matter how shady your past, how many mess-ups, how many blunders you've made, Jesus wants to include you. Amen. See, if he didn't include them... Maybe you could make a case those are the five worst women in the old, whole Old Testament. If Jesus could include them, why can't he include you? Just because you didn't come from the right side of the tracks, or just because you've made monumental mistakes that does not disqualify you from the love of God and being included in his family... And if Matthew had wanted, I suppose, he could have kept those women out. You know, he's listed just the family tree. Everybody else would have just listed the men, not the women at all. And yet, for him to include these five women, these five worst of the worst women, here for all the world to see. Again, remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience, reminding them who the Messiah is. And to this Jewish audience, reminding them who the Messiah is, he's saying he includes a Canaanite woman, a Moabite woman, and the wife of a Hittite. Again, like two weeks ago, we said your nationality, what your passport says doesn't matter. What language you speak doesn't matter. What What your birth certificate says doesn't matter. You can all be included in God's family. And by including these women in the family tree, these five women... It's God's way of saying saying gender, gender doesn't matter. That's Paul's point. Nationality doesn't matter. That's Paul's point. Your past doesn't matter. That's Paul's point. Men and women are included. Jew and Gentile are included. A slave and free are included. Jesus has changed everything. Remember, Paul, when he was writing to the Galatians these words, he thought he was living in the last times. That early Christians, New Testament Christians, they believed that Jesus' return was imminent. That Jesus had ushered in a new era, and through his death and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, they believed that, that, that this was a totally new day and that Jesus was going to return any day. You see that in some of the passages that Paul wrote. In Romans 13, he said, understanding the present time. Remember, he's read, the present time is the first century. The hour has already come for you to wake from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. What he's saying is the day, the coming day of Jesus' return is almost here. He says the same thing basically to the Corinthians in chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, when he says, I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. We don't got a lot of time here. We, we've got, Jesus is coming back. We've got to work for him. The author of Hebrews has the same idea when he writes this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, these are the last days, folks, is what he's saying. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So they believe, they believe that Jesus was coming back, that these were the last days, that we have got some work to do, and we've got to get busy. What does that have to do with neither male nor female? Do you remember Paul's sermon on on Pentecost? In two weeks, we're going to celebrate Pentecost. I love that service, and we'll celebrate Pentecost here. It's one of the high days of the Christian calendar is Pentecost. I'll be wearing my red shirt because red is the symbol of Pentecost. Great day. Well, in the sermon, his great, great sermon on Pentecost, the very first Pentecost, when 3,000 people were saved, Peter said this, preached this. He He quoted the prophet Joel. And he said, in the last days, again, remember, they were all thinking. They were in the last days. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Emphasize on all people, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, men and women. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Dreams. They believed that they were living in the last days, that Jesus was ushered in a new era and he was coming back anytime, And as such, the Holy Spirit was poured out on their sons and daughters. It was all hands on deck. God needs everybody. There's an urgency to the message. God needs everybody to be out there and sharing this good news. Well, listen, if that was true 2,000 years ago, how much more true is that today? I, I, we need our sons and daughters. Holy Spirit poured out upon them prophetically proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, in a moment of full disclosure, I don't know if these are the last days. The Father, who Jesus said he's the only one that knows, the Father has not consulted me on such things. I don't know. Jesus could come back tomorrow. He may wait another thousand years. I don't know. But what I know is we're closer today to Jesus' return than ever before. That I know. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus is coming again. And before he comes, in these last days... Paul is saying, Peter is preaching, Jesus is proclaiming in these last days, we need men and women, our sons and daughters, full of the Spirit, making as many disciples as possible. We need men and women to dream bigger dreams. We need men and women, our sons and daughters, captivated by the Holy Spirit, inspired by what God is doing and is about to do. And, and, and we saw it on the sermon, but God is doing that. You know, We mentioned and, and had some of our ladies who are experiencing a call and fulfilling that call on their life right now. We're saying, that's what's happening. God is pouring out His Spirit. And we say, praise the Lord to that. That God is calling both men and women. Why? Because there's an urgency. Why? Because these are the last days. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is pouring Himself out so that we can go and make disciples. I heard an in interview one uh, New Year's Day of a guy who was uh, building one of the uh, floats for the New Year's Day Rose Bowl parade. And it was obvious that this guy was enjoying what he was doing. And you've seen those floats on New Year's Day, and, and they're all made of flowers, and they're beautiful and gorgeous. And, and the reporter went up to this guy and, and saw the obvious thrill that he was having building these th- floats. And, and the reporter asked him this question and said, Would you like to do this all year round if you could? And the guy gave a very profound answer. He said, no, I would never want to do something for the rest of my life that was only going to last two weeks. And when I heard that, I said, man, that guy's right. I want to make my life count. I want to do something with eternal dimensions, not just two weak dimensions. Listen, we need our sons and daughters, our men and women. God has something bigger and better and urgent in these last days. That's what Paul is talking about, this urgency. Urgency. You know, in, in the, to the Romans and the Corinthians, he's saying, our time is short. The, day is all, the night is almost over. The day is almost here. These are the last days. We need our men, our women, our sons and daughters. There's, we've got to be about the master's business. There's a sense of urgency in his words. This week, um, Dr. Anthony and I and Tyler, his grandson, who's our summer intern, Tyler Van Steenberg, we went over to uh, Ruth Thomason's house when we were planning the funeral for Coy. And we were sitting there and telling stories, and, and, uh, and Ruth made us some, some molasses cookies, and that was great. And we were, we were just sitting around the dining room table telling these stories. And we wanted, you know, this was, so Tyler is our summer intern, and so it was a great privilege, I think, for him to be with his grandpa as we were going through uh, uh, making arrangements. And let me just say, our funeral committee is awesome, because uh, now with, with Charles passing, we'll have, we'll, our, we'll have served... I think, between last Tuesday uh, and next Thursday, nine funeral dinners here at the church. That's a lot. So anyway, so we're at at, at Ruth's house, and we're talking about it. And and Dr. Anthony started telling about his very first hospital call that he had ever made. And it was before he went to Bible college, when he became a Christian, he was attending the Williams Lake Church of the Nazarene, and uh, Norman Rickey was the pastor and, and Norman asked him to go make a hospital visit with him. So they get to the hospital, and when they were there, uh, Reverend Ricky said to, to, to Dr. Anthony, said, listen, I'm going to go visit this member of their church and name the guy's name. He said, but somebody gave me the name of this other person, and Dr. Anthony still remembered his name. His name was Red. Somebody gave me this name, of this guy named Red, and he's dying of cancer, and so why don't you go visit Red? I'll go visit the member of our church, and we'll meet back here in the lobby. And so Dr. Anthony says, "Fine." And so they both went their separate ways and visited the people, and they met back in the lobby. And and Reverend Ricky asked Dr. Anthony, said, "So how'd it go?" Dr. Anthony said, "Well, it went went pretty good. You know, I met him and we talked and I I prayed with him. Went pretty good." And Reverend Ricky said, "Well, was he a Christian?" And Dr. Anthony kind of stammered a little bit, said, "Well, I don't know if he's a Christian." Reverend Ricky, again, first hospital visit Dr. Anthony's ever been on. Reverend Ricky said, you don't know if he's a Christian. The guy's dying of cancer. He may be dead in a couple weeks. We got to go back up there and see if he's a Christian or not. And so that's what they did. They went back up to Red's room and Reverend Ricky led him to the Lord. And sure enough, the guy passed away two weeks later. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that Reverend Ricky, the Apostle Paul, and, and should be us, there was a certain urgency there was an urgency that, that Jesus is coming again and we've got to make sure everybody's ready and we've got to make sure that, that we're ready and everybody we know is ready. There was an urgency about it. We're not guaranteed a day. Again, we've had all these funerals. Our, our brother in Christ, uh, uh, Charles Nelson, who passed away just yesterday, I couldn't believe it, went to, to make a visit yesterday afternoon after the funeral here uh, in the morning, went over to Charles and Diane's house, prayed with them, went back, and four or five hours later, he was with Jesus. He was diagnosed with cancer on May 1st. This is May 24th. None of us are guaranteed. That's the point. There's a certain urgency that Paul is saying here. We need everybody. this isn't just for, for me. We need everybody. God's Holy Spirit poured out on our sons, our daughters. Why? Because it's we need everybody. It's hands on deck. We've got to get the word out that Jesus is alive and he's coming again. And we want everybody to know that wonderful truth. Sometimes when preachers preach sermons sort of like this, they will bring up uh, Solomon's famous words in Proverbs 29, where there is no vision, the people perish. And, and, and that was the, the, the word there, perish, is an agricultural term. It's used really in reference, usually, to rotting fruit, food that is spoiled or wasted, perished. So one could correctly translate Solomon's words this way where there is no vision, a person's potential is wasted away, rotted away, spoiled, perished. And my point is don't waste your potential. Our men, our women, our sons, our daughters, Holy Spirit poured out, don't waste your potential. If you've been told, oh, you're a woman, you can never do this, don't believe it. If God is calling you, listen to God and follow his lead. If if you've been told, oh, you're too old, you can't do this. If God is calling you, live into what God is calling you. This week, we had our board meeting, and uh, Tiffany Fee, Pastor Enosh's wife, Tiffany, uh, met with the board. In the Church of the Nazarene, if you are sensing a call upon your life, um, the, the first step is you meet with the local church board to get your local minister's license. And what happens is uh, when you're sensing God is doing something, you don't know, is this God? Is this the bad pizza I ate last night at Little Caesars? What's going on? I don't know. And so you you meet with the board. And the board... Uh, uh, they don't know what's going on either and so <laughs> you give them your testimony and and share what god is doing and you say boy i think god is talking to me but i don't know i want to be obedient and the board the church board they then say well uh, uh we don't know what god is saying either but we support you and we pray for you and we're behind you 100 percent and if god is calling you into this then then we're with you and that's what a local, you can't marry people, you can't bury people you, with the local minister's license, but it's just saying, you know, we're with you as you figure it out. And so, so you get your local minister's license and then you, you know, you pray more, you read your Bible more, you start taking a few classes, you start talking to Christian friends. And generally in that whole process, you discern is, you know, it really was God calling me or, you know, it was the bad pizza from Little Caesars. One other the way or the other, you know, that's what happens. Well, this week, uh, Tiffany comes and meets with the board and she, you know, shares her testimony. God's dealing with her, speaking to her. You know, she, a couple more weeks, and we could have had her picture up there on the, on the screen. God's dealing with her. One of the things she said... I'm trying to find where Tiffany's at. One of the things she said... Oh, there she is. One of the things Tiffany said was, was you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I, I, here I am in this stage of life. I got teenage boys. I, you know, how how is, how is God speaking to me about doing this she said but i really feel like god is speaking to me to do this see ah, what i think happens god is pouring out his spirit on men and women our sons and daughters old they're young not old <laughs> not old old just never mind you know what i mean <laughs> i am never gonna get a digging 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 My point, pulling this back together, my point, there needs to be a certain urgency among us, that God is at work, and God is moving, and God is, and we don't know how much time, we don't know, we don't know if you're going to get hit by a bus, or whether you're going to live to a ripe old age, we don't know when Jesus is returning, maybe tomorrow, but maybe a thousand years, we don't know, but we do know this, there needs to be an urgency about us. And we need to be praying, Lord, give me your eyes. Give me your vision. Give me your hope. I want to see what you can do. And if you want to use me, then I'm all in. You are redeeming us and redeeming this world into your people. Lord, how we pray every Sunday that your will would be done, your kingdom come right here in Flint for your glory, Lord. Let it happen. Use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.